I wanted to start off, and I don't do this often, but I want to tell you a little personal story about my own childhood. For several years during my childhood, my dad was a stewardship representative for a uh, worldwide missions organization. And what that meant was during those years, he essentially traveled his West Coast region from the, the, the tip of California all the way up to the top of Washington. He did this over and over again, visiting with supporters of the organization. What that meant for me and my brother during those years was that we got to spend the summer of those years traveling up and down the West Coast with him. Those are great times. Those are summers I'll never forget. They impacted me deeply. Uh, One summer, uh, Dad made certain we went to a baseball game at every major league park on the West Coast. That was a great summer. Another summer, we hit every major theme park up and down the West Coast. That was even better. And I, I cherish those memories. Those were really fun times. But the most impactful thing my dad during those summers was while we were driving. He liked to drive at night. It was cooler, and I'm old enough that not every car had air conditioning. So it was nice. It was less crowded on the road, and my dad had stacks of recorded sermon series on these things called cassette tapes. You can Google that if you don't know what that is. And one of those series that he had, though, was the entire Bible on cassette tape, and that was a very novel concept in its time. So not only would we listen to sermon series by various preachers, but once in a while my dad would say, we're starting a new Bible book. And we'd get on the freeway and he'd push play. And for hours we would listen to the Bible. And one evening as we started our trek for the night, my dad popped in the recording and it began in the King James Version. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to shew unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. And we listened to the whole book of Revelation that late evening. And at my request over the next few weeks, we listened to it over and over and over again. And I was transfixed by it. The book that tells us the final things of God's plan for the world. We, we heard about earthquakes and hailstones and wicked rulers and angels and demons and wars. And of course, it was saturated with Israel, 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 Israel everywhere. And then we would hear about Jesus Christ riding a white horse with his armies to come to the earth. I began studying Revelation occasionally as a high school student and early in college. I didn't have any study tools other than my Bible and a notebook. That was it. And then in college, I got my very first study tool, an NIV study Bible. It was the first thing I got. And it had something in it that has given me the greatest joy in the study of God's Word ever since then. Cross-references to begin to see how the Bible fits together. I also began reading anything I could get my hands on concerning the book of Revelation. When I was in my early 20s, I taught a summer men's Bible study through the whole book of Revelation. When I was in my 30s, I preached the whole book of Revelation as a pastor in Texas. And I preached the whole book of Revelation here at Grace Bible Church beginning three days after my birthday. And today, on my birthday, I'm going to savor the opportunity to receive your gift of allowing me to look at this book all day long together with you. Because in Revelation, 
we see the full glorified version of our Savior. We see him in all of his majesty. We see him portrayed as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is now in blazing glory. We see him as he is. We see him in his leadership and his correction of his church still on the earth. We see him as the one worthy to receive the scroll, the title deed to planet earth. We see him as the one who sits at the marriage supper of the lamb with the church fully brought into heaven. We see him as the one girding himself for battle as he prepares to take back what's rightfully his. We see him conquering Antichrist and his minions and setting up his kingdom on earth. We see him judging the lost from all ages and blessing the saved from all ages. We see every tear wiped away. We see the death of death. We see the end of all things sinful. We see the eternal separation of the wicked and the righteous. And finally, we see the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling the original intent for the created order. A glorious city called New Jerusalem on a sinless new earth placed in a sinless new heavens with all the nations of the world bringing their their glory and tribute and worship to God on his throne. Revelation is the culmination of God's plan for humanity, of God the Father's plan to glorify his son Jesus Christ by giving to him a people who will worship him freely for all eternity. Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he created mankind to be his co-rulers on earth in a perfect, pristine kingdom. But sin entered into the world. And sin entered into the world so that God's uh, grace and his mercy and his forgiveness could be seen. In his sovereign, mysterious plan, God allowed sin so that those wonderful qualities that make sin necessary, so to speak, to be able to display God's kindness and grace and mercy and forgiveness. All of those things could never be seen if sin had not entered into the world. But God set in motion a plan. He promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a savior to conquer the originator of sin, and that is Satan himself. And this savior would come through a chosen nation, Israel, which the entirety of the Old Testament highlights. But Israel would serve as a demonstration that mankind cannot form his own righteousness because Israel would fail time and time and time and time and time again. And yet God promised that this chosen nation not only would produce the Savior, but that God would bless and honor this nation for all eternity. And those discipline of Israel has been severe and lengthy even to this day. He will bless her. And as prophesied over 300 times in the Old Testament, Israel did produce a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the eternal Son of God. And during the ministry of Jesus Christ, he preached the gospel of repentance from sin and the coming kingdom over which he's the king. And he demonstrated what this kingdom will look like. He healed the sick. He defeated demons. He raised the dead. And finally, to pay the rightful Penalty for sins as the substitute sacrifice. He went willingly to the cruel cross as the propitiation, as the satisfaction of the wrath of God against sin. This provided salvation for all who had placed their faith in Christ and provided a way forward for humanity into the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus was raised from the dead. This proved that payment was made in full. He, God was satisfied 
And now the way was paved for all to follow him to be raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven 40 days later and promised his disciples that he was coming back to judge sin and to establish his kingdom on earth. He was going to then reestablish Israel as the capital nation of the world. And from the throne of Jerusalem, then he would rule the whole world. We interpret the book of Revelation the only reasonable way it can be interpreted from a literal future point of view. It has to be interpreted literally from a futurist standpoint because Revelation ties up all the loose ends of Genesis. It has to be that way. The corruption of mankind and and of the creation because of sin. Sin polluted his creation, but in Revelation we see a new heavens and a new earth. Sin corrupted mankind. And he's no longer qualified to rule the earth. But in Revelation, mankind is ruling the earth alongside Jesus Christ. In Genesis, the tree of life is at the center of the garden. But man lost his access to eternal life through sin. But in Revelation 22, the tree of life is the central feature of New Jerusalem. In Genesis 3, we have the fall of man into sin and the curse of God leading to death. Revelation 22, 3, there's no longer any curse. There is no more death. So Revelation must be interpreted from a literal future standpoint. It ties up all the loose ends. Revelation is the story of the completion of the redemptive plan of God to reestablish mankind on a perfect, sinless world as the co-regents, the co-rulers of creation with God on the throne over all as the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. And I'd like today to focus all four of our messages on Christ as the king. For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at the king and his people. At 11 o'clock, we'll look at the king and his dominion. This afternoon at 4.15, we'll look at the king and his war. And after we've enjoyed dinner together this evening, we'll look at 7 p.m. at the king and his arrival. So let's look first at the king and his people. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Late in his ministry, Jesus had preached about what was coming later, the end times. Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21. He did so in some detail, but he didn't give a complete story. After Jesus died, after he rose from the grave, after he ascended, it wasn't yet time for the church to receive a fuller revelation The church devoted itself to preaching and teaching, to evangelism, to prayer. The church was growing in numbers, growing in scope around the known world. Emperor Nero in the 60s AD persecuted the church, but his persecution mainly was around the city of Rome itself. A decade after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Emperor Domitian came to power. And he began a reign of terror within his own ranks and against Christianity. And now persecution began to intensify in the Roman world. Now the last living apostle, John, was banished by Domitian to the island of Patmos, right near the end of Domitian's reign. And it was at this time that John received, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. This morning, we'll divide our thoughts into three sections. I'd like to show you the king's commission, the king's subjects, and the king's glory. And I'll re-give those to you again. The king's commission, the king's subjects, and the king's glory. 
First, let's look at the King's Commission. The book of Revelation is a prophetic letter given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to John, to the very first original recipients. Chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. In this introduction to the letter, we have a highly Trinitarian greeting from John, wishing grace and peace to the churches. First, from him who was and who is and who is to come. That's Yahweh, God the Father. From the seven spirits who are before the throne. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to Zechariah chapter 4, in which the seven lamps of the temple are portrayals of the sevenfold Spirit of God. Zechariah 4.10 explains that the seven lamps are these. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. A picture of the omnipresence and the omniscience of the Spirit of God. So we have a greeting from God the Father, a greeting from God the Spirit, and then a greeting from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. Three descriptions of Christ, and they're given in chronological order. First, he's the faithful witness. Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. It's the second description in chronological order, the firstborn of the dead. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead to immortality. All others raised from the dead died again. So he's the firstborn of the dead. Also speaks of his preeminence over all who will be resurrected to life. He went first. And then he's called the ruler of the kings on earth. This is a recognition of Christ's messianic authority. God promised that his man, a descendant of King David, would rule on David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, and he would rule over all the nations. Psalm 2, we just read this. All other kings will bring glory to him. Revelation 21, and it hasn't happened yet, but he's still in that position of sovereignty. He is the ruler of kings on earth. And then John adds a blessing to the Son of God. Second part of verse 5, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ Jesus, by the shedding of his blood, conquered sin, which is a barrier between us and God. And as a result, those who trust Christ for salvation from sin, are made into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We're a kingdom waiting for our king, and we're priests to God, meaning we're worshipers of God who lift up his name, proclaim his glory. Verse 7 tells us that Christ is returning in a way, unlike his first coming, in which just some shepherds and Joseph and Mary witnessed, now every eye will see him. Second coming will be totally different. In fact, during the trial of Jesus, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63, records, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you were the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those who pierced him, the Jews, will see him, Zechariah 12, and some of them will repent. All the Gentiles who have rejected Christ will see him. 
They'll wail and mourn on account of him, not in repentance, but because of their certain doom. Revelation 9.21 says, Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And now, to close out this introduction here, God himself signs this document. Revelation 1 verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God's signature here asserts his eternality, his omniscience, his sovereignty, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, all rolled into that one statement there. What does this mean? It means that what we're about to read, what we're about to walk through, everything that God says is going to happen, is going to happen. Jesus will return. He will judge the nations. He will set up his kingdom. He will rule for a thousand years. He will bind and then finally judge Satan. He will end death and the curse. He will make a new heavens and new earth. And he will bring us into his eternal kingdom. This is real. It is real. It is the most real thing there is. And God signs his name to it. In verse 8. And so now on the island of Patmos, on the Lord's day, on a Sunday, John heard a voice like a trumpet behind him. Verse 11, saying, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. He turned around. And he saw a divine and a heavenly scene. Jesus Christ in all of his glory standing before him. Jesus is standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 tells us these are the seven churches being addressed. Christ is in the midst of his church. He's the head of the church. He knows intimately the affairs of every one of his churches on earth. And the description that we get here in Revelation 1, he's clothed in a long robe and a golden sash. This is a a priestly garment. It's very similar to that described in Exodus 28 and 29. Jesus is both a king who will rule and a priest who released his people by his own blood from their sin. He's said to have white hair like wool, like snow. This conveys his eternity and his wisdom, and it also conveys his deity. How do we know this? Well, this is a clear reference to Daniel 7, 9, the description of the Ancient of Days with the hair of his head like pure wool. His eyes here are a flame of fire. This is his scrutiny, his omniscience, his x-ray vision into the hearts of men as only God can have. He has feet like bronze, is some sort of reflection of God's divine glory. And it may be a reference to the fact that Psalm 110 says that Messiah will trample down his feet, his enemies underfoot. He has a voice like the roar of many waters and, and like a trumpet. This is the idea of grandeur and power. He's unstoppable. And in his right hand, he has seven stars. We'll see those in just a minute. And out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. This is his ability to judge with a word. Zechariah 14 says this will happen. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. His face is like the sun shining in full strength. John has seen this before, at least in part, remember? Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. 
John with Peter and James, and he, Jesus, was transformed, transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is the second time John has seen that. Put this all together. Christ is pictured as clothed in power and majesty and awe and terror. That long royal robe, the golden sash, the hair bright white like the sun shining off snow, eyes of flashing fire that penetrates every heart, every thought, glowing feet that will trample down his enemies, a loud booming voice like waves crashing on the shores of the island of Patmos, a long heavy great sword with two biting edges, a face like the sun at its brightest, too intense for human eyes. This is the head of the church. This is the Savior. This is the King of Kings as He truly is. And When John saw this glorified Christ, verse 17, I fell at His feet as though dead. Seems to be a common occurrence in Scripture when faced with God. This is exactly what John did at the Mount of Transfiguration also. But verse 17 continues, but he laid his right hand on me. How long had it been since John had felt the physical touch of Jesus Christ? It had been 60 years. In the upper room, John is said to be reclining that table at Jesus' side, leaning back against Jesus. They were touching and it's been 60 years. The touch of Jesus Christ was an indicator to John that I accept you. I accept your worship. The end of verse 17, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus had often commanded his disciples to stop being afraid. On the stormy sea of Galilee, he told them, Don't be afraid. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, Don't be afraid. The missionary journey of Acts 18, the disciples are told not to be afraid. When in prison, Acts 23, they're told not to be afraid. And here in verse 18, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is a tremendous statement of confidence in Christ. He is the eternal, everlasting, all authoritative Jesus Christ, he holds it all. He has all authority. And now John receives his commission from the king. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. What is this, by the way? This is the divine outline of Revelation. One of the reasons we interpret this from a futurist standpoint, what's the outline? First, write the things you have seen. This vision, chapter 1. Second, those that are. This is a reference to the seven churches we'll see in Revelation 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this. Chapters 4 through 22. They haven't happened yet. Write the things that are. Or write the things you've seen just now. Write the things that are. A reference to the churches and the things yet to take place. That's what Revelation is about. It's about the future primarily. Jesus explains what John has seen. In verse 20, the seven lampstands are the churches. Now, why are the churches pictured as lampstands? Basically, a tall candlestick holder uh, coming from the floor. Well, from the Old Testament, these are associated with worship, symbolizing God in his splendor and magnificence, the holiness of a flame, the heat of a flame. When the people of Israel came to worship, they saw the flames of the lampstands in the temple 
to remind them of the solemnity of approaching a holy God. The lampstands are also associated with witness and proclamation. Uh, Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 5 to let their light, what? Shine. It's also associated with the presence and the blessing of God. Jesus warns the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 that if they don't get their act together, I will come and remove your lampstand. The active blessing and presence of Christ in a particular local church body. And so the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, are these actual angels that fly around in heaven with wings? No, they're not. These are human leaders. These are those representing each church, the leader among leaders. And I'll give you a few reasons. These are not angels as we understand it. These are men. In both Testaments, angel, messenger, is used uh, of more than just God's angels. This word is used to speak of a human messenger in multiple places. In extra-biblical literature, even, the Greek word angelos refers to a human messenger, to one who gives a message. Another thing we would consider is how exactly would John send this letter to angels? And how would they be delivered? That wouldn't be possible. We also see that these messengers are rebuked and they're commended. The rebukes involve sin in the church and the failure of the shepherds to teach and purify the church. That's a human. That's a human. A holy angel can't be said to be responsible for human sin. And so now the king's commission is for John to deliver a letter to these churches, which is the whole of the book of Revelation. But each individual church is addressed now in Revelation 2 and 3, which brings us to the king's subjects. The king's subjects, the body and bride of Christ, the church. And the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is going to evaluate seven local churches. And his evaluations serve as direct punch-you-between-the-eyes comparisons for us as a local body. They're very good for us. And to just help us understand these, we can't spend a lot of time on, on them. I'm going to name each church. I, I, I've always wondered why churches are in the habit of naming each other. Uh, I don't know, you know, whether we want to be the Tigers or wh- whatever. But, um, so we'll name the churches just to help us understand. The church at Ephesus we'll call the Church of the Lost Love. The Church of the Lost Love. Christ commended them for hard work and endurance and for standing against sin in their midst. They even rooted out false teachers and ousted them rightly, so they were doctrinally pure. But look at chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Therefore, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. A church with sound theology but lacking in love is in danger of being closed. It's a good lesson for us, is it not? How about the church at Smyrna? We'll call this one the church of the faithful suffering. The church of the faithful suffering. Christ only commended them. He had no evaluation. Chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus defines a true Jew as one who trusts Christ as Savior, but here it is the Jews who are slandering the church and getting them in trouble with authorities, and Smyrna is going to suffer. You have the church at Pergamum. The church of Pergamum will call the church of the worldly relevant. The church of the worldly relevant. See also seeker sensitive churches. Christ commended them for not denying Christ even when their members were being killed. That was good. But they also tried to hold the worldly ideas such as the Nicolaitans. These were heretics who taught that you could receive Christ and still live immoral lives because grace covers all. Chapter 2 verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You have beginning in chapter 2, verse 18, the church at Thyatira. We'll call this one the church of the cowardly leadership. The church of the cowardly leadership. Like the church at Ephesus, they're a hardworking church. Their ministry is growing, but their emphasis on love has gone too far. How is that possible? Well, their emphasis on love is overextended into tolerating sin. Verse 20 of chapter 2, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The leadership didn't have the courage to root this out. And Christ is preparing to strike dead the guilty. You have the church at Sardis beginning in chapter 3. We'll call this one the church of the last gasp. The church of the last gasp, Sardis is a sham. They look alive, but they're dead. Chapter 3, verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You have the church of Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verse 7, we'll call this one the church of the open door. The church of the open door, the, the second of the seven churches now to receive no evaluation, just commendation. They're not a strong church. They're not a large church. They're not a powerful church. But Christ is going to open massive doors of evangelistic opportunity to them. Chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That is a great legacy. And then you have the church at Laodicea. We'll call this one the church of the utterly useless. The church of the utterly useless. They boast of themselves, and yet they're useless. Chapter 3, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And in fact, they are so utterly Christless in their version of church that Jesus pictures himself as standing outside of their church as an unwelcome guest. Chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. How sad it is that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, is outside knocking, saying, can I come in? 
Now, I want to just highlight two things in these letters. In these seven letters, the descriptions of Christ are rich and the descriptions of you, the king's people, are rich. Christ is called in these letters. I'm just going to walk through this quickly. He's called the one who holds the seven stars, the angels, the pastors in his hand. He's the one who walks among the seven lampstands, his divine presence in the churches. He's the first and the last who died and came to life. He's called the one with the words of power like a sword from his mouth. He's called the ones like with eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze, the fiery, all-piercing knowledge and judgment of God. He's the one who has the sevenfold perfect spirit of God and who owns the pastors of the churches, the seven stars. He's the one who is holy and true and who's the recipient of the Davidic covenant as the true king of Israel in the world. He's the one who's totally sovereign over all things, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Christ in all of his glory, even just in the description to the churches. But how about you? What are you described as? In the true believers in these letters, at the end of every one of these seven addresses, there's a description of the true believers. Chapter 2, verse 7, you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. I'm probably going to go too fast for you to turn to these. Chapter 2, verse 11, you're a conqueror who will not be hurt by the second death, the eternal judgment of God. Chapter 2, verse 17, you'll receive the hidden manna, meaning the blessings of God raining down on you in all the benefits of knowing Christ. Chapter 2, verse 17, you'll receive a white stone with a new name written on that stone. What is the white stone? Well, a white stone was used in ancient times as an entrance ticket to a banquet. And it was a banquet celebrating the victory of an athlete in the competition. And the entrance ticket has your new name on it. It's a name that signifies that you've now been made holy and righteous before God. You've been given entrance into the victory banquet of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 28, you will receive the morning star Revelation 22.16 calls Christ himself the bright morning star. In other words, you're promised Christ himself with all of the benefits and glories and delights of knowing him. Chapter 3, verse 5, you'll be clothed in white garments. Not only, listen to this, not only have you been credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ, now you will become as righteous as Christ himself. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says these garments represent the pure righteousness of the saints. Chapter 3, verse 12, you will be made a pillar in the temple of God, a permanent fixture in the kingdom with the name of God written on you. You've heard the phrase, so-and-so is a pillar in the church. Well, all of you are pillars in the church. The name of God is written on you. The name of New Jerusalem is written on you, signifying where you belong. And listen to this. The new name yet to be revealed of the Lord Jesus Christ will be written on you. This new mysterious name of Christ, which no one ever has ever heard, that will be the name spoken for the very first time. And Philippians 2 tells us what will happen. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that name will be written on you. The name of New Jerusalem written on you. The name of God written on you. In other words, there will be no doubt as to to whom you belong. 
Last but not least, chapter 3, verse 21, you'll be granted to sit with Christ on his throne. Fulfilling the purpose of God's creation all the way back to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, that humanity was created to have dominion and rule over the earth. You are the king's subjects who will rule with him. That's the king's commission and the king's subjects. Let's finish our time this morning looking at the king's glory. The king's glory. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. There are two time markers here in this verse. It starts with the first one, after this I looked, meaning right after he receives the letters to the churches. And then the second time marker, what must take place after this? At the end of verse 1. In other words, what must take place after the age of the churches of Jesus Christ on the earth. So John now is suddenly transported from his vantage point, fast forward minimum 2,000 years. And so now he goes forward in time because from this moment on from right here the church on earth is never mentioned again until chapter 20 never mentioned why because god has now kept his promise in revelation 3 verse 10 because you have kept my word about patient endurance i will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth he has kept his promise now of 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so now the scene shifts from earth during the church age, fast forward minimum 2,000 years up to heaven. And we come across a vision of the glory of God in worship. In Revelation 2 and 3, we're in the struggling mire of humanity. Churches caught up in persecution, caught up in their own sin. But now we shift to the perfect glories of heavenly worship Really a heavenly worship service set right before the beginning of the great tribulation. John is caught up to heaven by the spirit of God to witness worship in the very throne room of God. Chapter four, verse three. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is 
and is to come. The first thing that John sees is the throne of God. And this dominates chapter 4. 14 times. Throne, 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 throne. It's all over the place. God as the supreme ruler of the universe. In fact, in all of the New Testament, throne is spoken of 62 times. 45 of them are in Revelation. You can tell what the emphasis here is. In the throne room, God has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Our best understanding is that of a diamond and a ruby. Around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Every color, that's one color. How does that work? John's trying to describe something that is undescribable. It's almost a heavenly, brilliant Christmas scene. We walk in a fallen world, beating down our own fallen flesh, and yet the vision of this multicolored, brilliant, flaming, white-hot, diamond-sparkling, rainbow-beautiful magnificence of God This is our motivation to worship God and worship the God of all glory. This is real worship. And around the thrones, around the throne rather, are 24 thrones with 24 elders seated on them. This is one of the keys to understanding Revelation right here. Some think these are the 12 sons of Jacob and 12 apostles. Kind of makes sense, Old Testament and New Testament represented. But the text doesn't say that. Some think they're angels, but angels are never said to rule with God. The best option we have here is that the 24 elders represent the whole of the redeemed church. How do we know this? Well, chapter 3, verse 21 says, The saints are invited to sit on the throne with him, and the crowns represent the authority, the rule with Christ. And the New Testament frequently uses crowns to speak of our heavenly reward. So the church is our best option. As a matter of fact, if you made a comparison... Ezekiel's vision of heaven in Ezekiel 1 is extremely similar to John's vision here in in Revelation 4. But Ezekiel's missing one thing. No elders. Why is that? Because when the vision of Ezekiel took place, the church wasn't there yet. So they're not there. As a nation, Israel will not yet have turned to Christ. This happens near the end of the Great Tribulation. And so this is the redeemed church, raptured and resurrected. There are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Every other time we're told of thunder in Revelation 8, 11, and 16, some terrible judgment is getting ready to happen. There are seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the fullness, the perfection of the Spirit of God. By the way, remember that in the inner sanctuary of the temple of God in Jerusalem, there was to be a lampstand with seven lamps. They were to be burning, representing the presence of the Spirit of God. Well, the Holy of Holies in the earthly temple, that's just a model. That's just a model you buy at Target compared to the real thing. The real Holy of Holies is in heaven. The seven torches are the seven spirits of God, the perfect Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is the light that illumines the sea of glass. It's like crystal. Now, we, don't want to, we want to be careful not to just quickly, overly symbolize everything. What is this describing? Well, basically, the floor. The floor. But the important part is the clarity, the illumination that the glory of God is given by the Spirit. And in the same way that the Spirit illumined our hearts to be able to perceive Christ, to understand 
salvation, to understand God and to come to Christ in forgiveness of sins. Now the Spirit of God is illumining our ability to see this vision of the glory of God in heaven. And then there's these bizarre angelic creatures of verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 6 pictures angelic creatures around the throne, seraphim, burning ones, primarily their worshipers. Ezekiel depicts creatures most similar to these here in Revelation 4. He calls them cherubim. This is another class of angels, more like, more like guardians. Well, what are these? Well, there seems to be some overlap, but they are most similar to Ezekiel's vision. John sees the four living creatures as each having a similarity to a lion, ox, man, and an eagle. Ezekiel sees all of them having all four faces. Is this a, a problem? Not at all. Just depends on your perspective. If Ezekiel is seeing them spin, he sees all four faces. If John sees them stationary, then he sees one of each. Speaks to the difficulty of trying to describe heaven with words, doesn't it? Numerous interpretations have been given for these four creatures. In fact, it used to be very popular to see them as symbolizing the four gospel writers. Luke was the ox. I don't know if he would appreciate that too much. But you can see the character of these creatures. You can see the lion with his boldness and courage. You can see the ox with his great strength. You can see the man with his intelligence and wisdom. You can see the eagle with his swiftness and beauty. And all of them are said to be full of eyes all around. What does this mean? It means they have great wisdom, tremendous insight, unparalleled knowledge. By the way, if God's angels are this full of insight and piercing understanding, how much more the Lord, what do the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle represent? I think the best thing to say is that simply, this is sort of the greatest highlights of creation. It's just a a parade of the wonders of God. And they never cease to worship in truth. They're rehearsing and continually saying aloud the profound truths of God. Verse 9 says that these angels are giving glory and honor and thanks to God. Now they're almost certainly giving thanks. Why? Because of the presence of the church. How do we know this? You know, one of the most poignant description of angels is in Hebrews 1.14, says the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, that they rejoice at your presence in heaven. And now, now the saints respond. Verse 9 of chapter 4, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Why is the church praising God for creation? Because God's plan is moving forward toward ultimate redemption. When his original purposes for creation will now be fulfilled. And remember this, the saints who are singing here will be those who are resurrected and raptured. Uh, Learn those words well because you'll be singing them. We're experiencing praising God in our glorified bodies, the first taste of an eternity of living out God's purpose. We don't know what that's like. What does this mean? Why is the church praising God for creation? Because Eden is coming back. Restoration is on its way. 
But now the worship scene in heaven becomes even more focused and more purposeful because what is about to happen on earth becomes now the focus of what's happening in heaven. Chapter 5 is preparation for the great tribulation that's about to take place on earth. But most assuredly, the theme is the glory of the king who is coming. And I want to show you five attributes of this king by which he is to receive glory and then will be done for this morning. First of all, he is the Lion of Judah. He is the Lion of Judah. Chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw in the light in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Verse 1, in the right hand of God the Father is a scroll. God is the author of the scroll. It is of unparalleled significance and importance. It's written within and on the back. This is very unusual to have a scroll written on both sides. Most scrolls were smooth on one side for writing. The other side was not to be written on. But in this case, the material is so vast that both sides are used. A massive amount of writing And it's sealed with seven seals. So this is a massive scroll. Uh, Just for perspective, a scroll containing Paul's letter to the Romans took almost 12 feet written on one side. This is much, much bigger than that. So what are the contents of the scroll? Well, here's what we know. We know it contains the judgments coming in the rest of Revelation. We know this beginning in chapter 6, but it's not that exclusively though. This is very much the title, the deed to planet earth, showing that it belongs to Christ. How do we know this? Because in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, he's purchased the earth. He's purchased it. He owns it. Therefore, only he can open this scroll. And in fact, it's constructed like a title or a deed. In ancient times, you would have three seals on a title and each of them were signed by a witness. That's how you knew it was legitimate. It was valid. This is sealed seven times, not three. And Jesus is preparing to take back what is rightfully his to be the rightful one who will judge the sin and the wickedness that even at this moment is consuming the earth. And so the question in chapter five is who is worthy to open the scroll? Verse three, no one in all creation is found to be worthy. And because of this, John weeps heavily for some time. Now, why would he do this? This scroll is the key to the redemption of God's people. This is the final piece of the puzzle. And so the prospect of the indefinite pause of God's plan was overwhelming to John. And remember, John is probably 95 years old in that vicinity when he's receiving this vision. He's waited his whole life to know the truth. He's the last living apostle. He has been taken up into this vision in heaven and he sees this scroll held in God the Father's hand and heaven says no one is worthy to open the scroll and so he weeps. It's like getting to the end of a three-hour movie and the last five minutes get cut off. What's going to happen here? But now one of the elders, one of the redeemed of the church now in heaven gives the good news. Verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
He is the root of David. This comes from Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is Jesus Christ, true, true, true royalty. As a descendant of David, Jesus is human. As the Messiah, Jesus is divine. But the elder says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does that take us back to? It takes us all the way back to Genesis, doesn't it? To Genesis 49, the prophecy that Jacob made over his sons 1,800 years before the birth of Christ. Genesis 49, verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Lion of Judah first appears in Genesis 49, and now we see that he is the one standing in heaven ready to open the scroll. Why the lion of Judah? He's mighty as a conqueror. Proverbs 30, verse 30 says, the lion is the mightiest among the beasts. He's menacing in his wrath. Hosea eleven ten. they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And he's magnificent in his stature. Numerous times in scripture, a lion is used to depict a king. And so Christ, the lion of Judah, is mighty. He's menacing, he's magnificent. And this lion of Judah, descended from Judah, descended from King David, to be the final king that would engender the, obe- the obedience of the whole earth. John is told, weep no more. The lion has conquered. He has overcome the world. He's emerged victorious over the forces of darkness, over the serpent of old. But how did he do it? At the cross. And at the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And so the conquering king has the right to the whole earth. Why is he alone qualified to open the seals of the judgment of the world? Because in the grand wisdom of God, Jesus conquered as the Lion of Judah by becoming the Lamb of God. What a contrast, a lion and a lamb. He conquered by dying. He won by appearing to lose. He receives honor. Through sacrifice. That brings us to a second attribute of Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. Verse 6 And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He is the Lamb, Peter exalted as the one who saved us, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is the ultimate power of God, a lion, manifest at the cross, the lamb. But this is no ordinary lamb. He has seven horns. In the Old Testament, a horn is a symbol of power and strength. He is the rightful ruler. He is the rightful one to have military might. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, the the perfect omniscience, the perfect wisdom of the spirit. Proverbs 15.3 says the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. And so he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. But look more closely at the Lamb of God. He's standing as though he had been slain. 
What is this? This is an ironic picture of a sacrifice that has evidence of its death and yet is fully alive. What is the evidence of the death of Christ? It is the scars that he bears on his hands, on his feet, and his side. And we know that he bears these even this very day. Chapter 3, verse 21 pictures Jesus sitting on a throne, but now the Lamb of God is standing. Why is he standing? Because not only is he the Lion of the tribe of Judah, not only is he the Lamb of God, his third attribute that gives him glory, he is the center of God's plan. This is why he's standing. He's the center of God's plan. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is a majestic and historic moment. The lion, the lamb receiving the scroll, the deed to the earth. And this is very possibly the fulfillment of Psalm 2 that we read earlier, verses 7 through 9, in which the father promises the son, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus will judge, he will conquer, he will rule. In chapter 6, when Jesus starts opening these seals, opening the scroll, the conquering of the planet, Begins and the fury and the judgment of the wrath of the Son of God begins. Now, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they know this is an historic moment. Verse 8 And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Heaven breaks forth into instrumental praise at this moment. And why are the saints worshiping? Did you catch this? The golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The saints are worshiping in part because all the prayers of all the ages of all the saints are about to be answered. All the hopes and all the aspirations of every believer from every age are going to be realized through Christ. All your prayers are going to be answered because of Christ. All that's been prophesied, all that's been prayed for, all that has been begged for, from God is being fulfilled and answered. The redemptive purposes of God are coming into focus. It's happening. The long wait is over. He's the center of God's plan. There's a fourth attribute here in chapter 5. He is the Redeemer. He's the Redeemer. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Who's doing the singing here? Well, verse 9, the pronoun they refers back to the antecedent, right at the end of verse 8, the saints. This is very much a song of salvation and redemption. It's a song of the redeemed. And they sing, we sing, the lamb is worthy because he was slain. He purchased the people for God. He made them a kingdom and priests, those who will reign, those who will serve. And did you notice here? There are representatives in the coming kingdom from every people group on earth. So much for the question, well, what about those who never heard the gospel? The Bible says that every people group will be represented in heaven, every single one. Why is this a new song? Why is it new? Especially since it's right here and we can read about it. Listen to this. This is a new song because it's no longer a hymn about the future. 
It's a hymn about the present, about what's about to happen. One more attribute of Christ. He's worthy of all honors. He is worthy of all honors. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Wow. The saints have just sung this glorious song. Now all the angelic host, myriads of myriads, literally ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands, meaning you can't count them. And they extol the sevenfold perfection of Christ as worthy of power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. On earth, Jesus was insulted and denigrated and whipped and mocked and reviled. But in heaven, he is God the Son. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the Lamb who receives glory. And look at this musical crescendo. In verses 9 and 10, there's a song of worship sung by the church. Now there's a chanted worship shouted by countless angels. And now look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Who is this every creature? Well, apparently every creature. This is reminiscent of Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to show you something about the glory of Christ here and just how dramatic it is. Just a little grammatical note. Verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. But when the four living creatures said, and when those four living creatures say something that's not in a quiet voice, when they said, Amen, grammatically, they did it over and over again. What does this mean? It means that the four living creatures said, Amen, so be it. Yes, between every one of these attributes of chapter of verse 12 and the four of verse 13. It goes like this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. Amen. And wealth. Amen. You can be the four living creatures. And wisdom. Amen. And might. Amen. And glory. Amen. And honor. Amen. And blessing. Amen. Bottom of verse 13. To the lamb be blessing. Amen. And honor. Amen. And glory. Amen. And might forever and ever. Amen. That's just getting us started. You do a good angel, by the way. (laughs) Jesus is the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the center of God's plan, the Redeemer of my life. And He's worthy of all honors. Chapter 5 is a clear, clear, clear call to acknowledge and tremble before holy Christ, to worship and adore Him. Why? Because chapter 6 is coming. Judgment is on its way. This morning we've done King Jesus and His people. Next time we'll do King Jesus and His dominion. Judgment is coming. Let's pray for a moment.
Our Father, we thank you for this introduction to Revelation. These five chapters make us tremble at the sight of our Savior. We are so thankful for the cross of Christ to be found on the correct side of eternity because of your glorious and kind grace. Lord, I pray that every person hearing this would find themselves on the side of those shouting amen to the glory and the honor and the blessing of Christ. We thank you and love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.